And my hope with that is that maybe in the future, people that have kids like that, or not, not just kids, even adults, that if they find out about this, that we can draw more people into this because we actually have classes that make sense for them to air. You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to The Ride, a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by Horse and Rider Magazine, co-hosted by Nicole Cherico and Devin Conley. In each episode, we chat with some of the industry's top trainers, clinicians, horsekeeping experts, and professionals to share inspiring stories, training philosophies, and the importance of living your best Western horse life. On this week's episode of The Ride, we sit down to talk to Linda Von Coding. Linda is a National Reining Horse Association professional and judge, and she trains reining horses and coaches non-pro riders to an international level. Linda was also recently named Trainer of the Year, a program that is brought to you by Horse and Rider and Cosequin. This episode is brought to you by Cosequin. Cosequin ASU joint and hoof pellets contain quality ingredients to support joint and hoof health and leave out the fillers, molasses, and alfalfa, all while delivering the taste horses love. The colors of our ingredients shine through for a difference you can see. Visit CosequinEquine.com. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Ride. This is Nicole. I'm here with my co-host, Devin. And today we have a very special guest, uh, actually the winner of our Trainer of the Year program that Horse and Rider and Cosequin do each year, where we get to have people around the country nominate their horse trainers and tell us just why they deserve to be the trainer of the year. And this year's winner is Linda Von Coding, who is an NRHA professional based in Scottsdale, Arizona. But Linda, you're actually from Germany originally, which is, uh, I think, a first for our trainer of the year in competition. So you kind of bring an international group to us. We had people from Germany and different parts of Europe also nominating you, which I think was a first. So uh, congratulations on your win, first of all. Um, and thank you for joining us on our podcast. And and I guess, you know, for the people who might not be familiar with you or, or the reining industry, can you kind of talk a little about your, your upbringing and kind of how you got into reining to begin with? Yeah, so I actually grew up in the city and not around horses. My family has nothing to do with horses, but for some reason, um, I was always interested in horses. I mean, before I could even talk, you know, if there's a horse around, I'd point at it and I would want to go over there and pet it. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, I, I was just born with it. And uh, then as I got a little bit older, I tried to find ways of getting to the barn and getting to ride. And it was just limited, you know, for us time-wise, financially and location-wise. So I always said, said that at some point I was going to move out and I was going to go do something with horses. And uh, the first time I came to the States was in 2006. And uh, the people I ended up with were Rainers. It was Bob Anthony. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame for NRHA. And uh, that was my first exposure to reining. And I just fell in love with it. And then just one thing led to another and one job led to another. And I just kind of stuck with it. And, and I haven't re regretted it since. So you came to the United States to kind of learn about reining, although reining has a pretty large following over in Europe. Had you had any experience with it there or did you really just kind of come to the United States looking to to just find any kind of industry to get involved with the horses or was reining kind of something that you were kind of gearing towards? I was not planning on the reining. I had seen it in, in Europe because I've been to a few horse shows over there where they had the reining along with some other disciplines. 
Um, but that was really coincidence. I just had a connection to the Anthony's and um, they happened to be Rainers. And then that's kind of how, how that got started, you know. I'm curious about uh, in 2006, when you came to the States for the first time, what drew you here initially? If it wasn't necessarily the raining industry, was there something that really drew you to come here during that time? You know, originally it was just supposed to be a three-month summer to learn English and just get away from home and just do something different. Um, and I didn't really plan on moving over here full-time right after that. I was pretty young back then, too. So um, that just kind of happened because I ended up liking it so much. And I was really, I was 16 at the time. You know, I was really planning on going back home and going to college and doing all those things. And then they just never happened. So when you came here uh, back then, uh, was it, did, did you go back home and ride for a little bit over, you know, back in Germany? Or did you like pack your bags and just immediately move to the States and start working and riding? I wanted to just come straight back. Um, but because I was under 18, I couldn't get a work visa. Um, so I went back and forth. I, I rode and worked some at home and I'd come over for a few months and work some, for somebody. And then when I turned 18, that's when I got um, my first visa and then I just from there I was able to keep renewing them and just stay. Do you have any ties still to the horse industry in Germany or do you do anything over there or is it are you pretty much completely <laughs> yeah, based out I, of the States I, now? I, no I have connections over there I have horses in training that that are owned by people over in in Europe and then I I've done some clinics over there and every time I go over there I usually end up doing something horse related so um, we all stay pretty connected and, and especially for buying and selling horses, you know, people like to deal with people overseas that they know and they can trust, you know, so I mean, th there's a lot of business going on just across the ocean too. It's really cool how international uh, the reining industry is. And my first real experience with some of the international riders was at the World Equestrian Games in 2018 and seeing the the horses that they flew over. Because a lot of them, you know, like Bernard Funk, like they bring their horses over. And it was really cool to see just how big it is over there. And then since then, I've I've been part of you know, more of the reining and, and being able to see some of the events they're putting on there. And, and like you said, there's, there's a lot of horse buying and selling, you know, there's a lot going to Europe, but now there's horses coming back from Europe to the United States. And my best friend just bought one that was in Italy for a long time and now is here in the States. And it's just really cool to see how international this Western sport is. Cause everybody always tries to, you know, thinks that it's the English sports that are the international ones and people are flying their horses everywhere and whatnot. Yeah, it it is definitely very inter international. Um, we I've been to the WEG in I was in Kentucky. I think it was two thousand and ten, and it's it's pretty cool that people just bring their horses all over and and uh, fly them in for two weeks and just to compete and all of that. And and like you said, it's picked up that horses are flown over from Europe to stay over here, and that's a little bit more of a new development i think i mean we've seen it sometimes but very rarely but now that people from the states will go and shop in europe and then fly them back here and that that's definitely something that that has picked up more over the last two three years i think um so okay let's kind of we we've talked a little bit about 
how you ended up in the United States. And you've mentioned working with the Anthony's, but who were some of the other people that you rode with? You've mentioned that you worked for, for a few trainers and, and like, who would you say were kind of your mentors as you transitioned into the reining industry? Um, the, my, my second job after the Anthony's was with Mike McIntyre in North Carolina. And uh, I still use a lot of the stuff that I've learned from him. And, and, um, he's helped me a lot to make sure I don't overcomplicate things, you know, like, and I'm really, really happy that I got to work for him early on, um, where I feel like I have a really simple foundation for the younger horses, you know, and I think it's important for the young horses because they, it's much easier for them to learn and progress when you can keep things pretty simple for them, you know, and then I like simple anyways, because it makes it easier for me and my non-pros to show down the road as well, you know, so so I've learned a lot from Mike and he's also the one that um, got me interested in, in the judging. And, and that's the reason he was one of the reasons why I got my card because he was on the committee at the time. So whenever he had to judge some runs and needed a scribe to do that, I was doing that for him, you know, so he got me started on that as well, which the judging also helps me a lot being a better horse trainer, better coach, better showman, because it just shows you what matters, what doesn't matter. You know, it just kind of makes you prioritize a little bit differently. And then um, my last job was in Arizona. I worked for Martin Wilstetter, and I worked for him for several years. And I really appreciate everything they have taught me as well. And, and they've even after I left, they've continued to mentor me and help me, and just also on the business side of things, you know, just help me how to how to treat your customers, how to treat your help, how to go about things. If I have a question, I can always call them, or they're just five minutes down the road from me, so I can haul over there and ride some and, you know, ask them some questions. And so, and there's been others. I've worked for Casey Deering, and Sterling Ranch for a little bit. Um, but Mike and Mike and Martin probably were, were my big mentors. And now I live in an area where we have a lot of horse trainers, which is just very nice because we have many very accomplished horsemen just on the street. And I mean, on the street, five minutes, 10 minutes down the road. Um, so I spend a lot of time over at Storybook Stables and I ride with Arno Hunstetter and Patrick Flaherty. And they've helped me a lot over the last few years, especially since I went out on my own. That's my favorite part about Scottsdale is where you are. When you say down the road, you it's literally down the road when you're driving on Rio Verde. I mean, you see ranch after ranch after ranch. And a lot of these guys are training out of the same properties together. And um, yeah, what it, obviously not everybody in this industry has the ability to just drive down the road and get help from other professionals, which I think is such a game changer. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about like, as a professional, you're still going to get help because you're still continuing to, to learn and, and improve. And, you know, it's something that I think we forget is that we can never stop learning. Um, so what is it that you're kind of looking to accomplish when you're going to work with some of these other trainers who are your friends, mentors, you know, whatever? Um, I think the biggest thing we all try to accomplish is just be better horsemen. And that will lead to all the other things we're trying to accomplish, which is getting our horses trained to the best they can be and getting them shown to the best of their ability and and getting better, too. It's just for me, it's important to be good for my customers, too. And if I learn something new, then I can also incorporate that into the, into my lessons or preparing their horses and all of that. So I just think that we always need to get better. Otherwise, you're going to. Left, get left behind you know and 
and that's the beauty of it too. It's never gonna get old. It's never gonna get boring because there's always something new you can learn. You know, so you you you'll never have it all figured out, and there's always something that you can improve on. Which, when you come home from a horse show, you always want to know that you can do something better for the next time. You know. I think that's just great advice. Yeah, for anybody, professional all the way down to complete beginners, that like you can always be improving and. Uh, when, when you decide, when did you decide to go out on your own and, and start your own training practice and taking in your own clients, um, after working with so many like renowned trainers, when did you feel comfortable and ready for that next step? I don't think I've necessarily felt comfortable doing it. It was just, I got to a point where I knew I had to make that jump and give it a shot. Um, that was in 2017. Um, and I kind of figured that if it doesn't work, I can always go back to work for somebody, you know, but at some point, if you want to build something of your own, then you need to just kind of jump in the deep end and, and see if you'll float or sink, you know? Absolutely. Um, and, and since you've started your program, you have a, a, a very large clientele of non-professional riders. Uh, and in fact, that's how you won this competition is that the, the trainer of the year competition is that some of your clients had nominated you as uh, trainer of the year. Can you kind of talk a little bit about your program? Because not every horse trainer that we talk to on this podcast focuses on the non-professional. Some of them are just, you know, cult starters. Some of them only focus on the the open horses, but it takes, I think it takes a really special horse trainer to be able to compete in the open events, which is what you're doing, but then also have a large non-pro clientele and be able to coach those non-pros through their riding. You know, um, I think that living in an area like this where it's so competitive and there's so many alternatives for clients, I think especially when you're starting out, you don't get to be that picky, first of all, right? You don't start out with a barn full of open horses, you know? And then I've just been very fortunate that I've ended up with a great group of people. Like, it's been really fun. This year has been a good group of people. They, they're they all getting along. They're all supporting each other. And they all either had ni nice horses when they came or now ended up with horses that work for their goals. And it, I truly enjoy it. You know, like for me, coaching is something very different from training in a way because on the training part, I take it all on me, how that horse is performing or versus the coaching, you really got to sink another person to it, you know? And it's a little bit of a different challenge, I think, preparing the horse and then make sure somebody else can operate it also, you know? And I, I don't know, I enjoy those those not pros you know like i like i said if they if they enjoy being here and if they want to work for it and they're willing to be here for the process and the process means even the rides that aren't as much fun and even the runs in the show pen that maybe didn't work as you'd hope then i'm happy to help them through that you know because i have to work through it myself and i'm happy to help somebody else go through that process that's awesome and so many of the comments that we got on the nomination forms about you were talking about how incredible your communication style is as a coach and as a, a teacher and how supportive you are and how uh, you like uplift your clients. And they were just such positive, incredible comments about your, your coaching style. Do you have any like really key principles that you keep in mind when working with non-pros or did this just come very naturally to you? Um, I think 
what I really try to make happen is that to point out the good and the bad. You know, they gotta they gotta know what they need to do better in order to be able to improve. Um, and then on that on that stuff, I really try to give them a plan. You know, it's like okay, you're gonna run down there and you ask them to stop and the stop didn't work, then this is what you need to do in order to make it happen. So the next time you can go down there and it works, you know, and that will just help them gain a lot of confidence. And then I also make sure that I point out the stuff they did well and they did improve on because I need them to want to come back the next time and work harder, you know, instead of go home and be beaten down and dread the next lesson. You know, so I think that's those two components that are really important. Um, another thing that was uh, included in the video that was uh, sent over for your nomination is that you've also kind of helped uh, create the para reigning event that happened at some of the Arizona horse shows this year. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that and what kind of inspired you to push for those events to take place at those horse shows? Yes. So the girl that was in the video, her name is Everly. Um, her older sister is really involved in the reigning and she's always wanted to be part of it um and i always told the parents that um they should bring over because i have a, a gelding that he's he's a saint you know you can put anybody on and he's safe um and he won't do anything if you don't ask him to you know he's not gonna run off he's not gonna leave the arena he's just he's just a very very good horse um the older sister actually rides with martin and eventually they started bringing her over on a pretty regular basis and, and then I was kind of thinking about well we have a pair program for NRHA um, and I was talking to the board members of AZRJ if we could um, just put, make it a part of our horse shows um, and then we ended up for now I'm just making it a club class um, and we may take that to the next level I mean I think that needs to be talked about at some point you know but for us it was just at this point just allowing Everly to be a part of it is huge for her, you know, because she comes to every horse show. She always wants to help, and she's just very, very pleasant to be around. Um, and for me, she deserves that, you know. She deserves to have a spot where she fits in. And my hope with that is that maybe in the future, people that have kids like that, or not, not just kids, even adults, that if they find out about this, that we can draw more people into this because we actually have classes that make sense for them to enter. And having that inclusivity is so important. And we talk about that with different people on the podcast all the time about um, just like breaking down the boundaries and barriers to entry for all different levels of riders and different types of riders. So that's just very cool. So you have uh, this class and that you've worked on, you, you really like working with your non-pros what what other aspects of the industry are you passionate about? Do you really like working with young horses or anything like that? Yeah, I think my, my biggest passion is probably the young horses. And that's how I started. That's what I did the most when I went out on my own was starting a lot of colts and riding a lot of two-year-olds. And I really, I really enjoyed those horses. Um, you make a lot of progress in little time, right? Because it's very simple at the beginning. Um, and I, I just love putting a good foundation on them. And, and I love showing young horses that I started myself. Um, and that's I probably most young horses I get to show I had to start myself and, and build the horse myself. And then 
even I have some two-year-olds that move on to other programs, and it's just so fun to see them as fraternity and derby horses go out there and do well, and then eventually turn into non-pro horses. You know, I mean that's that's my biggest passion. I think you know I just love riding the young ones and bringing them along and just helping them understand what their job is. You know. And I like what you just said with like your end goal, where even if they don't stay in their, your program and they go somewhere else, but like your, your idea is to make them a nice solid horse that like a non-pro could possibly go show. And and I think that's really important because I think there's, we, we sometimes forget that there's, we as in the industry forget that the non-pros are kind of what keep this industry alive. So I love hearing that, like, that's kind of your end goal is to make sure these horses go on to, to have really great careers, um, in just every aspect of it, not just the level four open finals. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. When you think about it, I mean, it's how many horses are truly just level four horses and then go on to the breeding shed? Not very many, you know, I mean, right. the majority of them, they start out in the open to understand their job and then they get moved to be, a non-pro horse, a youth horse, a rookie horse, you know, I mean, that, and that's the type of horses that we need for those people, you know, and they need to be solid. They need to be easy to operate and they need to be a solid citizen, you know? I like a solid citizen. I like that. I love that way to describe a horse. Um, you've also, you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier too, you are a judge in the NRHA and you talked about how that's kind of improved your career and kind of helped you see things from a different point of view. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, just being a judge and, and what that's been like to kind of see things from, from that point of view, because I know when I'm sitting in the stands at a horse show, I see something and I'm like, Oh, that was, you know, great. Or, Oh, that looked like a penalty. And, and, you know, I, it's way different when you're sitting in the stands than when you're sitting in the middle of that arena. And I think people forget that. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about how that's changed your perspective when it's come to showing? Yeah. So I think part of it is that when you sit in that chair, you see the one view that really matters, right? I mean, it's like you sit in the in the stands higher up, you're going to see different things or at a different angle, right? And that's especially when we have multiple judges. Some people don't understand point spreads sometimes because different judges in the arena see different things from different perspectives, right? Um, but I think mostly by judging, I've understood more some things like pattern placement, you know, it's like, okay, now I understand why I always get told I need to hit my center, I need to make my corner square, you know, like these things, you kind of see the difference and it it will either increase or decrease your degree of difficulty of the pattern you're doing, you know, and then another thing is just um, by watching people show, I can see things where I'm like, man, I really like that, you know, look how they're pressing their hand on their mane and not helping the horse at all. That looks really cool. So I'm going to mark it higher because it's a higher degree of difficulty, you know, versus somebody that's constantly helping the horse through everything, you know, so it kind of makes you realize what you can show off better, you know, and that's really what it is. It's whatever you have, show it off the best you can and you can make it look better than what it is. You can make it look worse than what it is, you know, and then for the coaching, I think it's super important because a lot of the non-pros, they don't know what the rules are. They don't know what the penalties are, and somebody has to tell them. And I think that we as the trainers really got to know those rules, which when you're a judge, you you have to know all the penalties and all of that, obviously, right? So, um, And then it gives you the credibility a little bit to tell someone, it's like, hey, this wasn't good enough because this, this, and this, or what you did over there, that was a penalty one and a penalty two. And then you're going to minus the maneuver because of it. And it just kind of helps people figure out how to be cleaner and how to be safer and not give points away that 
that you could have saved pretty easily, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And that's all about perspective. And for our listeners who, who might not be aware, can you just briefly go over what the process is to become a judge? Like, what did you have to go through um, to have that title? Yeah, so first, if you don't have a judge's card at all, um, you have to attend what's called the seminar. Um, you do need uh, two people to put a reference down for you for that, um, which you just ask people that you know in the industry um, just to provide a brief reference, just that you're involved in the industry and that you're a horse person and that kind of stuff. Um, and then the seminar is two days of school and then just a half a day of testing, very similar to the actual judges school, um, just on a different level. Uh, and you are going to watch videos of runs and you're going to evaluate them in a group and you're going to um, look at all the penalties. You're going to go over maneuver evaluations and you're going to talk about, okay, what's a correct maneuver that we would give a zero to. And then we're going to watch examples of each maneuver score from minus one and a half to plus one and a half and just kind of talk about what makes them a plus one, a plus half, a minus half and that kind of stuff. Um, and then the testing is basically watching. I don't remember for the seminar. I, I know we judged 20 runs. I don't remember what else we had to do. Um, but then when once you get through the seminar and you pass that, then you need to go to judges school, which is a similar setup. It's two days of school and a half a day of testing. And you go through everything. I mean, you go through what bridles are legal and you go through the maneuvers and the penalties and you go over things that are currently going on in the industry. Um, and then um, the testing is, again, it's a set of 20 runs, which include um, penalties and all types of runs. I mean, good runs, not so good runs, pretty poor runs. You know, I mean, you have to evaluate them all and then you have to place them right. So you have... Um, you have to get first and second right. And a lot of times they come in pairs, so it's two sets of 10 runs, and you can switch the first and second and the third and fourth, but you couldn't switch the third with the first, if that makes sense, right? So you have to place the class correctly. Um, and then you have a theory test as well, which is um, basically an open book test, um, and it's designed for you to open the rule book and read through stuff while you're trying to find the answer for something. Um, and and then once you do that, you have to retest every two years. So you have to attend to school every other year and retest so you stay up to date. That's very cool. Uh, it, and it's nice to know that they're retesting every couple of years to to stay up on trends and, and new rules. And, you know, obviously mm -hmm. things change a little bit every year. So it's great to know that there's, you know, such a great education system out there for people who are either judges or wanting to become involved in that. And I believe in the NRHA, you don't have to be a professional to be a judge either, which is something that was kind of uh, foreign to me because I believe in the AQHA, you had to be a professional in order to have your judges card. So that was a really cool thing that I learned is that, you know, as a non-pro, you could actually go be a judge if you were really passionate about it and you wanted to, to further your education in that way. Yep, for sure. And I, for me, I don't see an issue being a non-pro and being a judge because it's two different things. Just because you can evaluate the maneuvers doesn't mean you, you can train a horse. And even if you know how to train a horse, you train your own. You know, I don't really see the, I don't think it gives you an advantage that you should be considered a professional. 
No, definitely not. It, it's like being in a different part of the horse industry. Like I, you know, I work in the horse industry, but I am definitely not a professional, even though I'm involved with horses and, and work with people all the time in that sense. And I think I look at it the same way as like, if you're a judge, yes, you're in the horse industry, but you're not training horses. You're not coaching people. You're, you've, you've learned the rules. You understand what, you know, should or shouldn't happen in the show pen. And you're able to, to accurately score that. Um, so kind of going back to, you've mentioned in, in this podcast, when you were, you either had clients who came with really great horses or you helped find horses for them that really fit what they're looking to do. Uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about your program when it comes to kind of finding that right horse for, for that right non-pro? Cause obviously everybody's goals are going to be a little different not everyone's looking to compete at the fraternity or the derby, you know, maybe they're just wanting to compete in the rookie or qualify for the run for a million. You know, how do you go about finding the right horse for your clients? Um, I kind of started with a basic set of goals, like what, what purpose are we buying the horse for? And then also what kind of budget am I dealing with? Right. Because that's going to determine a little bit of what horses I can look at. And once I have, um, those two components then I I usually start by asking the the people and trainers that I know you know and I usually start with the local ones because that's just much easier to go look at um and uh, something I really pay attention to is that they are good-minded you know because that's half the battle like I really try to buy horses that are good nature that are out of good mares that are known to produce solid show horses um, and that's really important for the longevity, you know, because I can have a super talented freak, but if they're not good natured, then they might be too tricky to show for a non-pro or they might not last as long in the show pen. So I really try to focus on strong bottom lines on the, on the pedigree and really try to buy from solid programs, you know, programs that I know that they do a good job from a very young age and have the foundation right. So that gives me something to work with. Yeah, I think that's great advice for buying a horse for any discipline, right? Is that good mindedness is paramount. Um, so, you know, you're such a, a beloved coach. All these people wrote in, they had such amazing things to say to you. Um, what are your what are your personal goals right now? And and what does that look like for you just on, on your uh, showing schedule? What are you getting up to for your own personal goals? Well, my short-term goal right now is making the fraternity finals on the one I got entered. <laughs> um, I have some more long-term goals. So I have a mare that I've been showing since she was three and she's five now. Um, her name is Dolly's Inferno and we've started raising some babies out of her. So we got two weanlings on the ground. We got two coming in the spring and we kind of try to raise two or three a year. And my long-term goal for that is to get her record going as a broodmare um, and I want to obviously keep some of them and then sell some of them to good solid programs where they have a chance to become show horses. And that's kind of my bigger, little bit, the bigger project that's going to take a little bit longer because I obviously need them to become of riding age. And then it takes another year and a half, at least until they hit the show pen. Um, but that's something that I have high hopes for and um, that's something we're working on right now. We just kind of got to be patient for a little while longer. I love that. I, I love, uh, your goals too, with, the, with your, uh, breeding program and, and kind of bringing up those babies and, and helping that mare kind of get that producer record. And it's really cool to hear that. Cause we don't really hear a lot about 
the mayor side of things as as often as we do about you know the studs where they're standing them and they're they're doing this and that but it's cool to hear that side of it and and I, as somebody who owns mares and loves mares, uh, I love hearing that kind of perspective of the breeding industry. Now, you said you have one in the fraternity this year. This podcast will go live right around the time the fraternity is starting. So you'll probably be competing around the time this goes out. Can you tell everybody uh, what horse you have for this year? Yeah, her name is She's Smart Spooks. Um, so as you can probably guess, she's a mare by Smart Spook. <laughs> and um, she, I've had her, she came to my program as a lady yearling. And um, so I've had her the whole time. And I've shown her a handful of times this year. Um, the latest was in Burbank just this last week. And um, we actually didn't have her paid up. We were going to wait for next year. And um, she actually was really good in, in Burbank. And so I talked to the owners and I kind of was like, well, as much as I can't promise anything, I do think she has a chance to make the level two finals. And I kind of think it would be a good idea to give it a try. And so they agreed. And so we just entered her like three or four days ago. Oh, wow. So this is like a recent decision that you're going to be showing <laughs> yes. in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yes, <it is. laughs> you know, that's the thing, though, that's about the, the three year olds is that, you know, they, they could be so far behind in January or even the opposite so far ahead in January and then come October, September, you're sitting there going like, oh, maybe I don't need to show or oh, maybe we do need to go and, and mm-hmm. pay the, the late fees and enter because this horse is actually coming along pretty well. Yeah, you just never know with them young ones, you know, your best one the first of the year is not always your best one later on, you know, and they, um, the people owner there from Germany, and they had never seen her in person. Um, and they came over this summer after just after raining by the bay after she got shown the first time and, and they kind of watched her ride and rode her a couple times. And they asked me about the fraternity. I said, well, I mean, right, we were like, well, right now that's not enough what we got. And I'm like, well, you're right, but we also got four more months, you know? Like, I think you just got to see how she develops. I can't promise you she'll be far enough along in three or four months from now, but the only way to find out is to keep riding her and give it a shot, you know? And, and she's just one of those horses that, and she's always been that way all her life. She's never made a big jump. You know, she's been the, a type of horse that's always, it makes slow progress and small steps, but it's, she is pretty consistent about it and even last year as a two-year-old when we talked about her I told them it's like it it can be a strength especially as a three-year-old you know because she's not one to throw big surprises at me you know like all the stuff that she does good or bad it, it really is pretty consistent which gives me a chance to prepare for that you know and that's that what I look at that as an advantage because I can prepare I can kind of I can be prepared when I show her and I can be better about the preparation to show because I have an idea what's going to happen or not you know oh absolutely well and when you say consistency I mean that's what we're all shooting for in the show pen right is a a consistent horse who's going to be the same time after time and and if she's consistent every time you ride whether it's good or bad at least you know what you have exactly so, oh, well, we'll, we'll be cheering for you in a couple of weeks. Good luck. Uh, that's a really, that's really exciting that this just happened in the last couple of days. Um, but it sounds like you have a very good group of non-pros who are also heading to Oklahoma city here in a couple of weeks. So you're going to have your hands full, uh, for the people who are listening and who want to learn more about you, where can they follow you on social media or online? 
uh, I have an Instagram. It's LVK Performance, and then you can look up LVK Performance Horses on uh, Facebook as well. So, you and you'll find contact information there. My phone number, my email, everything is on there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and congratulations again on winning trainer of the year. We absolutely loved watching your video and reading all of the entries that came in from uh, your clients and people who have been rooting for you for a long time. And, and it was just, it's so cool to be able to honor trainers like you who are really making a difference for this industry. So thank you again for coming on and talking with us. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was my pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Cosequin. Visit CosequinEquine.com. Thank you guys for tuning into the Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com to see all the cool things that we're up to. And if you have any comments or questions, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider@equinenetwork.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes.